When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com culture. And by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com US. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest hashtag Squad Goals edition. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2015. On today's show, Rogue Nation is the fifth Mission Impossible movie. It stars the indefatigable Tom Cruise. We'll discuss whether we find him fatiguing or not ourselves. And then Taylor Swift, Waka Flocka, and the roots of hashtag Squad. Hopefully, Slate's own Katie Waldman will tell me what those words mean. And finally, Nashville, bro, alt, fake, authentic. We talk the semiotics of country music with Slate's Carl Wilson. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, well, Julia, before we proceed here, we have some business, don't we? I'll let you strap on your harness so you can attach yourself to a Russian cargo plane, Steve, while I describe a few things that our listeners might like to know. First of all, we are coming to Chicago for the first time ever on Tuesday, September 22nd. You can get tickets for that at slate.com slash culture chai. That's culture C-H-I. I believe that tickets to the cocktails before the event are sold out, but there are still tickets to the show. So come say hello. We'd love to see you. And also, I just wanted to flag for listeners. There are probably some listeners out there who don't listen to Hang Up and Listen, which is Slate's fantastic sports show. Well, this week you have no excuse because Steve sat in for Stefan and delightfully held forth on the Patriots. Listen to that. I, Julia Turner from Boston, Pat's fan, Pat Skeptic, can claim that it was delightful. And also the resurgence and economics of the Mets. It was a fascinating show. So don't forget to check out Hang Up this week as well. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. Here in a typical show, I would recite the plot of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. But did it really have a plot? There are rogue nations, rogue spies, rogue CIAs within the CIA, maybe a rogue shadow organization. There were rogues everywhere in this movie. I couldn't really piece it all together into a cogent narrative. Neither could they. It scarcely matters. It has stunts, explosions, missing hard drives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It stars Tom Cruise as Agent Ethan Hunt. And of course, it stars Lalo Schifrin's amazing theme music. Let's listen to a clip. Package is still on that plane. Check down the fuel pump. Uh, the mechanicals are locked out. What about the electrical system? Oh, that might work. Uh, no. Hydraulics. Okay, stand by. No, oh, they're encrypted. Benji, the plane. Yes, the package is on the plane. We get it. Can you open the door? 
I'm by the plane. Benji, can you open the door? Uh, maybe. Open the door when I tell you! He's so far demonstrated no ability to control <laughs> the mechanicals of this plane. Like, what is the backup? So in case you can't tell from that not very friendly to audio clip, that's Tom Cruise hanging off the wing of a plane that's about to take off as I think it's Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg are on the ground frantically trying to hack into this plane's computers to open the door. Because otherwise, as does end up happening, Tom Cruise will just be clinging to the door of a jet as it takes off. And they need to remove some like nuclear material. They can't let the baddies get the bad stuff, Dana. (laughs) They got to keep the bad stuff out of the hands of the baddies. But as Julia noted, they don't really have a plan B. Plan B is just Ethan Hunt falls to his death from the plane. Yeah, there's not a lot of safety nets in the plans of the Mission Impossible rogues. Otherwise, the mission wouldn't be impossible. Exactly. All right, Dana, it is a piece of completely automated snobbery at this point in our collective careers as the Culture Gap Fest to point out that this movie's an incoherent mess that will go on to make $2 billion. Is there anything distinctive about this movie or was there to you? Oh, there actually really was to me. I mean, I, I, I kind of agree that it's a total incoherent mess, but I do think it's a pretty successful summer fun movie, especially for being the fifth entry in a franchise that's been around for 20 years. It's kind of mind-boggling when you think about that because we're in the age of reboots and, you know, whatever. There have been three Spider-Mans in the past decade or something. But this character, Ethan Hunt, in this particular incarnation of Mission Impossible, which is the first one since the 60s, 70s TV series that Cruise got the rights to, has been going on for 19 years. The first movie, Mission Impossible, was in 1996. So to me, just as a pure... Can we just note that we were interrupted by Dennis phone, which made the noise of like a 1890s like steam engine whistle? <laughs> That's the choo-choo sound in, in, in Apple. It's great. The choo-choo is my text <laughs> you, you have like a steampunk phone even, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at the case. It's, it's, yeah, a it's a little leather book for crying out loud. All right, go on. I think Tom Cruise's longevity is something worth talking about. And his attempt to, you could say cling, <laughs> that would be a rather condescending way to put it, but to to bravely hold on to this action hero persona well into his 50s. He's 53 years old now. And you have to say that he looks fantastic in this movie. And his claim that he does his own stunts seems to be true. He's clinging to it like a man clinging to the side of a Russian cargo jet. <laughs> Exactly. That's Tom Cruise's machismo that's taking off into the sky. (laughs) He has a pretty firm grip. But Steve, you are the nation's leading Tom Cruise expert. You've written wonderfully about Cruise for Slate. He is at least to start a creature of your favorite decade, the 80s. I'm curious to hear what you make of this man's longevity. Mm. Well, I read somewhere, I thought I was amazed by this. I I should have checked to see whether it was true, but I I like it so much I don't want to know if it's false. But Tom Cruise at 53 is the same age as Wilford Brimley in Cocoon. The most notable thing about the movie to me was that there's this vast apparatus that's, I think, very skillfully delivered. I really like Rebecca Ferguson. I like the other supporting players, Ving Rhames. You know, the music is wonderful. There's, I thought, very interestingly, there's a couple of, especially the opening set piece where he's clinging to the side of the cargo plane. There, There are a couple of very, to my mind, routine action sequences early on. Then there's a quite long one, an extended one in the Vienna Opera House that's 
I think meant by the director to be a kind of self-conscious toward a force that it goes on way longer than these things typically do because it's within the confines of the opera house and backstage among the catwalks and the ropes. It can't indulge in a lot of the same predictable motorcycle explosions and gunplay. It's meant to have a, a, a degree of suspense to it. I didn't think it was as astonishing as I think the director thought it was, but I thought it was impressive and it played a little bit against type. But what kept striking me about the movie most is that at the center of this vast apparatus is an actor who, to my mind, can't carry these kinds of movies. But I know that I am empirically wrong about that. I mean, the only reason I've written about Tom Cruise or been interested in him is that I don't understand him at all. I don't understand how this diminutive man who, in my estimation, really truly lacks either charisma or depth, nonetheless has been arguably the biggest movie star in the past 20, 25 years. And one of the biggest certainly grossing movie stars in the history of the medium he does nothing but either mystify or irritate me and he's no really different in this movie i think it's interesting that he either looks creepily too young or creepily too old and by creepily too old i don't mean anything ageist i mean only that the wear and tear on him which occasionally looks evident doesn't appear to me to be connected to normal life experience. So a good contrast might be Sean Penn, whose face is aged intriguingly and has opened up a whole different kind of part and a whole different style of acting for him because it's just cragged and creased with human experience. And I don't see that when I look at Tom Cruise and, and notice that he's over 50. And then there are other moments when he looks 28 and that just strikes me as cyborg-like and kind of impersonal. So you know, my final analysis is, expertly delivered summer action movie without much of a heart. Steve, that's so interesting that you find his inhuman qualities and strange agelessness to be mystifying and at odds with his success, because I actually think those things are the secrets of his success. There is something about him that makes him seem like a machine designed to do this kind of thing, play this sort of superhuman person. And obviously the PR strategy around these last few movies of there being some crazy set piece stunt that he actually did himself in a time when leading men don't typically put themselves at risk in that in those ways feeds into that strategy that he is a physical being designed to do these superhuman things and thus is believable in these roles that kind of beggar the imagination. And somehow that adds up to me to something mesmerizing to watch. There's something reptilian about him. Like, I feel like we're watching this potent lizard in a cage, and he's doing these fascinating things, and he can he can do these amazing feats, and he does not seem like one of us. He doesn't feel like Tom Hanks, you know, with a heart of gold, a man thrust, you know, Captain Phillips, a man thrust into circumstances beyond his ken, struggling to find his way through. Like, he just is different. And somehow his on-screen persona aligns with both his physical anomalousness and everything we know about his personal life, that he's deeply associated with the Church of Scientology, which more and more reporting has come out in the last couple of years about its overreaches and missteps and terrible treatment of its members. And, it, you know, certainly in the portrait offered in Going Clear, sounds like Cruz is very close to the leadership of the church and, and not in any way at arm's length from all of that. Which adds to the sense of him as some sort of, right, in a creepy way, sort of otherworldly or ageless or someone who's made a deal with the gods. Yeah, right? there's like a Faustian quality of like he's 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 kind of signed a deal with some strange 
life Zenu. force and you see, you know, little flashes of reptilian yellow pulsing behind his eyes. I don't know. I can't take my eyes off of him. And it all was delightful. And you say that lovingly. And I say that with a warm and full heart. <laughs> I don't know. I just really liked watching him. Dana, do you think that this movie, I mean, I, I have caught wind of the fact that it's making huge amounts of money. It's quite a success. Is that because of Cruz or maybe in spite of him? My sense is that he is not beloved, that if you were to break down the focus group, you wouldn't discover that the reptile is, is widely beloved by audiences anymore. What's your impression of him as a star at this point in his career? I don't know. You know, one thing that was great about this movie coming out last week is that there was so much great writing about Tom Cruise. It suddenly exploded onto the net because every film writer got to sort of think through Cruise in their own way because this really is Cruise sort of doing Cruise, right? It's kind of him exemplifying his Cruiseness. We also should mention that this is completely his project, Mission Impossible. He's never directed one of these movies, but he's been the, the executive producer of all of them. He's chosen the directors for all of them. It's It was his production company that acquired the property in the first place. So Mission Impossible is not just, you know, sort of a studio franchise that Tom Cruise is being conveniently plugged into. It's an enterprise of self-creation that he's been generating for two decades. So I think people are, are fascinated by that. I think there actually is probably a lot of retro affection for him from audiences. I I am a little bit puzzled that he could draw new, younger viewers into the, the box office. But this is, this is some pretty pulse-pounding summer stuff, I guess. And one piece of writing on, on Cruise that I particularly loved last week and wanted to recommend to our listeners is by Mark Harris of Grantland. And it's not specifically about the Mission Impossible movies. It's about the three movies for which Cruise has been nominated for an Oscar, which were probably not in order, Born on the Fourth of July, Jerry Maguire, and Magnolia. And he kind of breaks down his performance in those three movies and talks about Cruise as an actor and how he's kind of given up, in a way, on being an actor in the way that he was in those three films and on trying to do those kind of prestige pictures. And that he's really battened down on this this idea of himself, as as Julia says, the, the physical actor, the guy who does his own stunts and, and kind of won't let go. Well, I'd also argue that his role in Magnolia played very explicitly off of his public persona and that, obviously, that was a choice on the part of Paul Thomas Anderson, who went on to make the master and is clearly fascinated with cults and cults of personality. But that was a role in which Tom Cruise played sort of a Tony Robbins-esque self-help guru with maniacal fervor that also played on the like reptilian yellow behind his eyes. You're like, this is not a totally human human here. It's very impressive that he took that role when you think about it. And I'm not sure that now with what's happened to his self-image since then with revelations about Scientology and jumping on the couch and fighting with Brooke Shields about depression and all the strange ways that we've seen Tom Cruise since then, that he would take a role that's as exposing of kind of the underbelly, the dark underbelly of that persona as the Magnolia role was. I bet he'll come back around again, though. I don't I don't. I mean, first of all, he can't do this forever. I mean, may he do this forever. I can't wait to watch in 20 years Mission Impossible 9, Galaxy of infidels and you know he's geriatric like a, nation <laughs> yeah and I'm sure he'll be dangling from the International Space Station in that one but I do think he's our most inhuman leading human and I do keep wanting to watch him. All right. Well, the movie is it's the fifth installment in the Mission Impossible series. It's called Rogue Nation, starring Tom Cruise. Probably going to go see it. You might as well tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia. What do we have? This episode of Slate's Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery. Braintree makes the payment experience in these apps seamless and magical, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. 
With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree has also helped to solve the problem, which I did not know was a problem until I uh, received this ad copy, but which I can recognize in myself. I am a perpetrator of this problem of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. Wait a minute. Can we step back and define mobile cart abandonment? I assume it is the vendor term for what happens when you almost buy a bunch of things and put them in your mobile shopping cart, but then do not check out. <laughs> that could also be called financial prudency. <laughs> So Braintree will help you help your users overcome their financial prudence. They offer a full-stack payment solution and support for all payment types your customers might want, including but not limited to Bitcoin. And they offer superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. Katie Waldman is the words correspondent for Slate.com. Katie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I have to query you about a set of words that mean nothing to me. They are waka flaka and the roots of (laughs) hashtag squad. Let me quote a little bit from some of the people that you quote in your piece. As Megan Garber writes in her essay on Squad, quote, Swift, Taylor Swift that is, is a performer not just of music but of friendship. She takes the cliches of female camaraderie and commercializes them. And then you go on to say Lena Dunham has praised her squatty Swift for summoning a witch's coven of benignly magical besties. What is this concept, Squad? So as far as I understand it, and I think that it definitely takes on a lot of different meanings depending on who you're talking to, it's a word for a clique or a crew, a friend group. And Taylor Swift is the one who has really brought it into the mainstream by amassing sort of a coterie of fantastic ladies and saying we are all best friends and we've got each other's backs and hashtag squad, that's what we are. Um, and so I guess you can just see the squad as sort of your your backup, your support group, and sort of your social aspiration. This is where you live in the social world. Yeah, I mean, this is a term that's been in circulation for some time, but seems to have become ubiquitous this summer. You can tell it has reached ubiquity because marketers have started adopting it and Places like Burger King are telling you that your squad goals should be getting hamburgers on National Hamburger Day. But I'm so excited that you wrote about squad, Katie, and I'm excited to have you on to talk about it because I think the current appeal of the term is interesting to dissect. And then the history of it is also interesting to dissect. And in addition to hashtag squad, there is also the usage hashtag squad goals, where you talk about what you and your crew aspire to do, be, look like, resemble, or how you like to recreate. And that also, I think, has lent itself to social sharing and buzzwordification because squad goals is a fun and catchy way to articulate that you like something or think something is great. And liking things, as we know, is the official lingua franca of the social internet. So squad goals seems to have virality embedded in and of itself. And I think that's part of why we're seeing the term so widely now. But before we get to the current usage and ramifications of squad goals, you should fill us in a little bit on the history. And we should probably go back to Latin. But before we do, please put Steve out of his misery and explain to him <laughs> where Waka Flocka. Waka Flocka. Yes, come right. to this. Okay, so really quickly, uh, Waka Flocka is one of the flagship artists at a record company started by his friend from Miami, Gucci Mane. Or maybe that's Gucci Mane. I'm not 
exactly which he sure made. how to pronounce his last name. But he is another rapper. They started the record company Brick Squad and basically released a bunch of songs that were talking up the company and talking up their tight social bonds, their squad. And then it just kind of spread as rap lingo, hip-hop lingo, and then, of course, more mainstream pop started borrowing the word. And so it started in this kind of subculture in the trap and then uh, moved outward to a place where Taylor Swift could could pick it up and make it part of her image as well. So as you put it, Katie, in, in your wonderful wrap-up to this to this essay on squads, the best armor is other people, right? I mean, the idea of the squad is sort of that you're marching in formation and what's protecting you is your friends. Totally. And that's why it kind of, I'm not sure if you guys are completely pro Taylor Swift's use of squad, but it strikes me as strange that it's it's such a sort of subtly defensive word to use for someone like Taylor Swift. And I, I wonder if it rubs any of you the wrong way. You mean just because she's such a golden girl and such a top dog already that the, the idea that she needs protecting by a squad is, is kind of false victimhood? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why doesn't she just have a crew? Yeah, I mean, squad is phonetically more fun than crew, I think. And I do think that, you know, overdogs have adopted underdog stances for years. I mean, that's like Mm -hmm. everybody loves an underdog and overdogs know that and they like to share vulnerabilities in ways that make them seem likable and relatable. And that's something that stars and celebrities have been doing in various ways for decades. But I think for Taylor Swift, there's a gender angle that operates in a kind of interesting way because part of what she is doing by embracing squad and the concept of the squad. And in fact, her live show for 1989 is all built around female friendship. There's a song where she brings whatever friends are in the city where she's performing and they all march on stage with her. Most of her friends happen to be gorgeous supermodels, but they're just out repping for Taylor during the scene breaks where they're kind of changing the set around and Taylor is shimmying out of one spangled outfit and into another. You see these kind of Errol Morris style, like white screen interviews with Taylor's famous friends and the one girl that she went to high school with. It's basically mm-hmm. like Selena Gomez and Lena Dunham and the girls from Haim and Cara Delevingne and Carly Kloss, like all famous, gorgeous women in succession. And then this like one girl who's like knew her from her English class and looks like a normal and is charming. And I think it's a surprising move for a pop star to make both in a arena performance and also just generally as a social move. And at the risk of giving too much credit to Taylor Swift, who much though I like to tease Steve about enjoying her music on the show, I do not think is an entirely uncomplicated and perfect <laughs> pop figure. But she's, you know, she's like passing a Bechdel test for pop stars, right, in a way that we typically don't see. Typically, they're singing about loving men, yearning for men, spurning men. You know, the function of the pop song is primarily romantic. And in fact, Taylor Swift's songs are primarily about romantic relationships. But the shtick around her performed songs is non-romantic. And I think that's, like, actually interesting and not just appropriative bullshit. Yeah, I agree that in an ideal world, that would be great. But I also think the function of the Bechdel test is to imagine and to see women as fully formed human beings. And these these ornamental creatures that Taylor Swift is surrounding herself with to enforce her brand don't strike me as like realized friends, like real people that she's appreciating for their own 
qualities and like my very cynical take and I know maybe I'm I'm pushing it a little bit too far just to to argue but I feel that she has adopted this you know we are magical witches of female friendship and women are wonderful this whole stance because she came under so much fire for being the crazy ex-girlfriend and so she very cannily decided maybe like a military general who is deploying his various squads in very strategic ways she decided oh I am now going to do a 180 and make my image all about sort of cultivating the bonds between women. It just it seems opportunistic to me and I'm I'm suspicious of it. Well, I'm curious, Dana and Steve, to hear you guys weigh in on how much this term is crossing your radars and whether you like it. Julie, I can safely say this concept and this word have yet to cross my radar at all, really. I mean, and it ha- hasn't really hit my kids yet. They're not quite old enough to be doing this. I will say that my first impression of this phenomenon is that it seems sad to me in a way that, I mean, I understand that psychologically, you know, vulnerable teens and tweens have probably always not only self-defined through their peer group, but surrounded themselves with people who they feel somehow protect and bolster them and defend them against, you know, detractors of the outside world. I mean, that's sort of a normal part of friendship. The fact that it's put on conspicuous display by Taylor Swift just strikes me as sad in a way. And I I still, it's funny, we're talking intelligently about it, but still, it, it still seems to me we haven't gotten at why someone would do this. Why would you go to a concert and the pop star suddenly trots out on stage live and on film, their crew, their friends, and the overwhelming impression one is supposed to take away from it, that they're all extremely beautiful with one, I love the idea of the token, you know, friend from her pre-famous life, but they're otherwise all famous and beautiful and talented and um, rich. I mean, I have to say, I'm not sure I would plunk down the money to take my impressionable daughter to see that spectacle. I kind of have to agree. Um, But as long as we want to move the conversation maybe away from Tay-Tay and into other usages of this term, I just have to mention this fantastic exegesis on Grantland by by Rembert Brown of a photograph, a a red carpet sort of photograph of Nicki Minaj at a bar mitzvah. I think maybe if you were online two weeks ago or whenever this piece went up, you've already heard about it. But it is Yeah, I think actually Steve endorsed it on some show recently when you were out, Dana. Okay, so maybe our listeners already know then. But the way that he breaks down the, the social dynamics, as, by the way, completely imagined and projected by Rembert Brown onto this photograph, which he knows nothing about, and, you know, what the the placement of each 13-year-old boy in relation to Nicki Minaj might mean. It it just contains a lot of sweet sociological analysis of the junior high male mind, and I loved it. And so there's there's a kind of a non-coven of witches version of squad goals that's quite sweet. I agree. I think that was a magisterial document, and I want to print it out and frame it and put it on my wall. All right, Katie, you're, you're the words correspondent. Does the site culture gabfest constitute a squad? Are we in tandem with our listeners a squad? Are we in tandem with our regular contributors and correspondents like you, Carl Wilson, who will join us later, Chris Malanfi, Koi Swans, June, the rest? Are we the squad? Who is the squad in this dynamic? Or are we all squads? That's such a complicated question. I feel like squad is sort of what you want it to be and what the squad says they are, says it is. So, I mean... From the outside looking in, you guys definitely seem like a super cool squad that should be, you know, emblazoning your faces across various billboards and things. Um, 
And I think like the best and most sort of fruitful deployment of squad would be an inclusive one where um, listeners are also part of the squad and everyone who feels friendly feelings towards each other can all be part of the squad. So that is my hopeful vision for squad. But as the squad leaders, you are in a position to say yay or nay. All right. Culture Fest squad goals, colon, have a lovely inclusive squad that welcomes each and every one of you listening to this right now. Marching in one giant square formation. Yes, and pr- <laughs> protect us from those other ravenous podcasts out there. The, haters, the political the sea of fest. haters through which we navigate. Armies activate, mobilize. All right, this is getting too aggressive. Steve, end it. All right, well, the article is called Taylor Swift, Waka Flocka, and the Roots of Hashtag Squad. Katie Waldman, thank you so much for joining us. That was fun. Thanks for having me. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia, what do we have? Our podcast this week is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, wonder more, stargaze, do it all. And if you purchase a Volvo, you can get a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. It's the wonder of summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.us or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. All right, Steve, what's next? Uh, All right, Julia, thanks a lot. Moving on. Manichaean scenarios of brave mavericks redeeming Nashville's corrupted soul are obligatory for covering country for people who don't like country. So writes Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic in Slate magazine. Carl, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Carl, uh, among the many things I love about you and your work is that you can listen to a new album from Casey Musgraves and then crank out 3,200 words on the uh, semiotics of country music. Talk to me a little bit about who she is and how you felt about her when you first heard her music and why this new album got you thinking about all the many different and competitive definitions of country music. Casey Musgraves is a young country singer um, who sort of first made a big impact um, with most people with the song Follow Your Arrow. Um, which became kind of a, an LGBT kind of anthem and a, and a sort of general tolerance and good feelings anthem. What happened in the adaptation of, of Follow Your Arrow by large numbers of people is that she started to be used instead as kind of a stick to beat country with, as something superior to mainstream country, as something that corrected for all of mainstream country's supposed reactionary ills, and really as a, as a tool for people who don't like country um, to use to take an opportunity to criticize country and sort of interlope in. Um, I think it's much against her will. I don't think that, that it's really anything Casey Musgraves ever asked for, but it's sort of an opportunity that um, gets taken very frequently by both critics and audiences in this ongoing use of country as kind of a scapegoat for things that are wrong with white America. Hmm. Carl, it seems to me that that among the many great places your piece goes, it talks about this division 
that seems especially urgent in, within country music between you know, sort of authenticity and inauthenticity, for lack of better words. But there's kind of the original, what people think of maybe as the original country music as created by Hank Williams and the Leuven Brothers and Red Foley and Texas Bob Wills and like, you know, up through Merle Haggard. But then country somehow became something else. And you know, as if Carl at a certain, and I'm not saying this is a true narrative, it might be a false one, but at a certain moment, like country music mutated away from what was true about its origins and turned into something synthetic and manufactured and inauthentic. Is that part of what you were playing with in this piece? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the narrative that a lot of people feed back to us about country frequently, and they'll do it over and over again by the decades, you know, what really happens is the country goes through sort of a cycle between sort of traditionalist music and more pop-inflected music. And then, you know, the new traditionalism arises. And every time that cycle works its way around, what you have are these kinds of outcries that country music isn't even country music anymore. And especially claims basically from outsiders to the music that it's betraying itself in some way, whereas the sort of traditional country audience, you know, the rural and, and suburban audiences from the from the South and from the Midwest, you know, continue to listen to country through all of these iterations and don't seem to sort of just feel themselves betrayed. And there's a kind of, you know, country is very imbued with nostalgia by its very nature. And in some ways, I think that encourages people to nostalgically fetishize its previous phases as true and its current phases as false. And it's also the case, Carl, which you write about really deftly, that there's a lot of kind of classism and regionalism in the comfort that people feel in saying, I like every kind of music except country, right? A kind of cliched statement of the, the lefty consumer of global music and products from everywhere. But there's this one place I'm not going to consume the products from, and that's Nashville. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it speaks to a lot of ongoing conflicts, you know, political and cultural in America. And it's also because... The traditional country audience can be stereotyped as kind of this redneck white audience. It's an audience that people feel comfortable expressing some disdain for, whereas with other music, you know, even when people decry hip-hop, there's usually a little more nuance to it, because people are aware that they're speaking about an audience against which prejudices may be um, maybe not the most noble thing to have. But with country, people often seem to feel um, kind of overly comfortable going ahead and slamming whole demographics of the population. Carl, you really put your finger on this phenomenon that recurs, I think, every few years, which is the country phenomenon who people who don't like country like and then like to use to slag the rest of country. Is the purpose of your piece to offer us a lens through which to view conversations about country for time to come? Or would you prefer that we all just stop seeing country performers this way? Like what if you could wave a magic wand and uh, render American ears to have a new aspect towards country music, what would you desire? Well, I think that mainly I'd like people to understand that there's always things coming out of mainstream country that are also worthy of their attention. You know, I think people hear things and definitely there's always sort of trends in mainstream country the way there are in any kind of mainstream genre where things become a little too much and you hear a little bit too much of the same kind of thing. But with country, people tend to be really dismissive of the stuff coming out of Nashville, you know, and lionize the things coming out of anywhere else as the true 
the real true country music. And I, I think that lots of people who enjoy, you know, someone like Casey Musgraves, who actually does come out of Nashville, if they looked a little closer, could find things in the mainstream country charts at any given time that are actually more interesting than they're giving it credit. And I think if people could separate themselves from the disdain for mainstream country as a genre and you know, country radio as a kind of social location and listen more closely to the music, there, there wouldn't be this kind of false opposition drawn up so much of the time. You know, for example, in the piece I talk about, you know, the basically the number one country song of the summer, or at least of the sort of early summer, was this song called Girl Crush by Little Big Town, which, you know, is really is really a fantastic song. Uh, yeah, let's listen to that. I got a girl crush Hate to Smiling at me and I laugh. She's giving you love. And you know, that's kind of the I kissed a girl of country at the moment. It's the song that kind of teasingly uses allusions to same sex attraction to talk about something else, in this case about jealousy and a kind of love triangle. And it initially faced this really kind of conservative backlash, as you would think, but and it, it looked like it might go away, but then it kind of rebounded to become to become the, the sort of big hit of, of the past few months. It's kind of interesting that there, and and also in Casey Musgraves' "Follow Your Arrow," it's it's girl on girl love that's the that's the boundary pushing element, right? That makes it makes this music somehow listenable or somehow r- redeemable for uh, for non country listeners. I will also promise never to mention Taylor mention Taylor Swift again on the show. Like I really, I I, I pledge you this, or at least let's do like a six month hiatus, but. You know, also the first song on her I'm Done With Country album that just came out is the one that, to much derision, lauded uh, New York and its embrace of same-sex couples. Like, the relationship to gay love as a signifier for people positioning themselves within the country mainstream or against it does seem like a recurring... Yeah, it's kind of, you know, I mean, it's when people talk about dog whistles politically, I think that, you know, those kinds of illusions are kind of a dog whistle to the urban audience a little bit to say, come, you know, come over here. It's, it's safe to listen to me. We're tolerant um, and all that. And, and <laughs> back to yeah, exactly. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show. The, the piece is The Problem with Country for People Who Don't Like Country. Carl Wilson is Slate's music critic. Carl, always such a pleasure. Great to be here. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Dana, what do you have? You know what? I'm going to embrace my Dana-ness this week and in, and endorse something that is going to deliberately make both of you guys mock me. So last week when we were in the studio, I was turning off my computer as we were about to start recording and Julia heard a little glimpse of what was currently playing on my Pandora, which was some sort of Indian classical music and proceeded to mock me like, she actually does listen to that stuff. It's not just our jokes. And so I decided, you know what? I'm stepping up to the plate and endorsing the actual music I was enjoying last night, which is Anindo Chatterjee, a wonderful tabla player who I discovered through Pandora. And I know nothing about except he plays the tabla, which is this Indian 
Indian drum like a total angel. And the way I discovered him is because I think, as I've mentioned before on the show, I um, I do a lot of Pandora exploring. And Pandora has this great, great archive of Indian music. And in the midst of looking into how that came to be, like, why is it so possible to explore this foreign music on, you know, very American platform? I came across this article from The Times Magazine from 2009 called The Song Decoders by Rob Walker, which is all about the Music Genome Project, which is this vast database of, of music that has given rise to Pandora and that I believe is now Pandora's proprietary software. No one else can use it. And it's a listening algorithm that has nothing to do with what your friends are listening to or what people are liking on Facebook that is just about the actual qualities of the music. So they got all these musicologists and musicians together over, I think they're still doing it, in fact, and, and uh, the article records some of this process. And they listen to music and then they record the technical elements of what's in the music, right? Like, is it syncopated? What kind of harmonic structure does it have? I don't know, stuff I don't understand, musicological stuff. And that's how you find new things on Pandora. And for me, at least, it really works. If I sit there and, and like things and thumbs down things and tell the algorithm what I like, it'll find incredible artists like Anindo Chatterjee. So if you want to listen to some good Indian music, listen to Anindo Chatterjee on Pandora. And if you want to hear how we got on there in the first place, read The Song Decoders by Rob Walker. Ooh, all right. That sounds fascinating. All teasing with Duran. <laughs> uh, Julia, what do you have? I have an endorsement and a, a plea, a request for materials from our listeners. Uh, the endorsement is brief and is on the subject of the superhumanity of Tom Cruise. Another great Tom Cruise movie that came out recently and didn't get quite enough play is Edge of Tomorrow. It's not, like, transcendently great. It doesn't stick the landing. I thought about endorsing it when I first saw it and decided that it's an imperfect movie. It's a B movie. But if you, like me, enjoy the reptilian amazingness of Tom Cruise, Edge of Tomorrow is... You know, I think overall I'd give it a B or B minus, which means it doesn't rise to uh, endorsement or squad goal, watch this category. But I will make an exception this week because it the conceit of it is that basically that Tom Cruise becomes immortal, right? In this movie, the plot is basically you, you try to achieve something and you die and you wake up again where, where you started. So Groundhog he, Day. So, so it's sort of, it's like an action movie Groundhog Day where he gets to do things over and over again until he gets it right and it plays with the invincibility of Tom Cruise in a fascinating way because you get to see him vulnerable. You get to see him die a thousand times. It's like the opposite of Ethan Hunt. He's incredibly vulnerable and his invincibility only allows him to die a thousand deaths and in a way, watching it and watching the performance feels like kind of a metaphor for his entire career. So if you're if you're a cruiseologist and you enjoy action cruise, you should definitely put Edge of Tomorrow on your list. My plea, my request for materials is this. I saw The King and I, my mother-in-law very delightfully got tickets to the lavish Lincoln Center production of The King and I for me and my husband. It is not a musical I was familiar with. I know a couple of the most famous songs, but I'd never seen it, never watched the movie version. Just like it, it's not one of the Rodgers and Hammersteins that had seeped into my consciousness growing up as a relatively musically literate person. I'm dying to read critical essays about this. What a racist document that everyone was watching at Lincoln Center, but also like not a totally racist performance of it. I Anyway, I went and was like devouring the reviews of the production. And I'm really not sure that it's actually defensible to produce it anymore. I'm dying to hear what people think. So if anybody has seen the recent production of The King and I, please come to our Facebook page and talk about it. If anyone can point me to interesting essays about the choice to produce this now and how one should think about this document that sees itself as racially progressive from a time that was very much not and thus has a strange mix of self-confidence about its own progressiveness that seems utterly benighted given that all of the Asian characters speak in pidgin English, but also not entirely unwarranted given that there are more viewpoints represented than you might expect. 
please let me know. It is the thing I have consumed that I most wanted to do a GabFest segment about in a while, but Dana and Steve haven't seen it yet. So help me out. <laughs> so you're let me get this straight. Your endorsements this week are a B minus blockbuster and a racist yes. musical. Maybe together they add up to like not quite even one endorsement. <laughs> Squad goals, find you something better to endorse next week. <laughs> talk about sticking the But line. have you guys, but All wait, right. sorry, just briefly, have you guys seen King and I ever? I saw the movie I saw as a when kid. I was a yeah. little kid. I think, I mean, I think I'm sure there have to be scholarly journals uh, comparing. I'm just talking about Flower Drum Song, South Pacific, The King and I, this whole kind of wave of exoticizing. Oh, yes. I musicals. took Orientalism and Western music at, at, as part of my college education, somewhat amusingly. But weirdly, we didn't get to King and I. I. I wrote an entire paper about the Orientalism of the Mikado. So, yeah, people study this. But I want to be pointed to the actual interesting texts, both pop and academic, on how to read this document because it's... It's totally fascinating. Hmm. A funny decision for them to stage it. It would be interesting to find out what the thought process was, whether they thought they could bring it into the 21st century in an enlightened way. But Yeah, I kept waiting for the modern nod, and they play it very straight, but um, I'm hungry for more thinking on this. Mm, okay. Well, my um, endorsement this week is uh, I accidentally came across a YouTube video of Billy Bragg and a woman named Courtney Barnett doing a a very fetching cover version of a uh, Velvet Underground song. I can't quite remember which one. Anyhow, uh, so I started tootling around the internet and discovering who Courtney Barrett was. Uh, she's wonderful. She's got an album called Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit that came out in March of this past year debut album before that. She's not only Australian, she has a connection to, I think she's from Melbourne, but she has a connection to Tasmania, which is one of my favorite places in the world. I don't know if I've ever had any occasion to talk about it, but when I was a travel writer, I did go there. And um, I can just so wholeheartedly to anybody who's traveling from outside of Australia to Melbourne, it's a one-hour flight from Melbourne to Hobart, Tasmania. And then from there, you can drive you know, up from Hobart to Launceston. I mean, it's, it's the most ex- exquisite car ride I think I've ever been on. It's just an astonishing... Tasmania is, is an astonishing place. It's just this wild conjuries of micro competing microclimates. I mean, there's just everything there on an island the size of South Carolina. Anyway, I really like Courtney Barnett's music as I'm getting to know it. And if you're ever in Australia as part of your trip, I would highly recommend going to Tasmania. And email me first. I'll uh, hook you up with my friends. All right. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Steve Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Culture Fest.